I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Farfetch Fables. Welcome to show number 39. This week we bring you two new stories. For our main fantasy, we bring you Dream Eaters by A.M. Delmonica, a tale of fairies like none I've heard before. This one casts the fae folk in a slightly different light, one that suggests one doesn't cross the fae without considering the consequences. Our second story is The Flying Woman by Megan McCarran. This is a tale of adventure and discovery, and, well, flying. Be cautioned, though, as the flying woman may be a little racy and should be considered PG-13, so you may want to preview it before you share it with your wee ones. A little bit of background for our first author. A.M. Delmonica has recently moved to Toronto, Canada, after 22 years in Vancouver. In addition to writing, she studies yoga and takes thousands of digital photographs. She is a graduate of the Clarion West and teaches writing through the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Delmonica's first novel, Indigo Springs, won the Sunburst Award for Canadian Literature of the Fantastic. Her most recent book, Children of a Hidden Sea, was released by Tor Books in the summer of 2014. She is the author of more than 30 stories in a variety of genre. They can be found on Tor.com, Strange Horizons, Lightspeed, and in numerous print magazines and anthologies. Her website is at alexdelmonica.com. We'll have the link in the show notes. Our narrator for Dream Eaters is Heidi Hotz Norse. Heidi is not just another voice. She's a voiceover artist with a range of personalities that varies from mom to business corporate to the friendly girl next door. She's been in the industry for more than 10 years and has worked on television commercials, radio, documentaries, audio fiction, and narration in general. You can find Heidi online at LinkedIn. And now... The Dream Eaters by A.M. Delmonica. Read for us by Heidi Hotz Norse. Mo Cottonsmith had just turned 16 when she started Lopside Fashions. 
with the cash she stole from a neighborhood fizz dealer. The money wasn't enough to sustain a business, but Mo counted on getting lucky. She believed in making her own luck, too. Thanks to a roving cop cam, her first creation just happened to debut on all the morning news shows. The dress was daffodil yellow with simulated dewdrops on the bodice and a chainmail hoop skirt. Moe's pal, Juanita Jones, was modeling, and the footage showed her fighting off a couple of deviants. It wasn't much of a fight. When Juanita spun to face her would-be attackers, the blades hanging in a fringe at the bottom of the chainmail whipped around two. They took off suspect number two's index finger at the second knuckle. Then, pinpoint blasts of pepper spray from the dewdrops finished him off. Sadly, his buddy fled before Juanita could deploy the tasers in her matching shoes. She fired them anyway, then pouted into the camera and strode off down the sidewalk. So suddenly, hoops were in again, and breezy thieving Mo was a person of interest to someone besides Crime Stoppers. They tried to stick her for hacking the cop can, but her lawyer got that flush just before I joined the force. Lopside's next release was the AD bodice, a bustier that patted out one of your boobs to a double D while squeezing the other to a bud. It took off, too. And at 19, Mo began cashing the kind of checks the thought of which sends the rest of us running to the scratch lotto. She spent it on a big, expensive house, decorating the place in what she called group home chic. I said there was nothing group home about it. She said chic was not my subject. Back, forth, back again. It had been that way between us the whole time we were roomed together at McMurdy's, a civic dumping ground for girls who can't go home or get a foster placement. Ignoring my input, Mo draped the fabric all over her walls and furniture, then got herself the world's loudest stereo system. The basement, she called the hangar, because it was full of hammocks and toys for her various hangers-on. She also built herself a new version of the night mask she'd stolen from me years before, the last time she ran away from McMurdy's. It had fancy green-tinted goggles, padded ones that fit comfortably, and heavy-duty hardware on the breathing filter. She slept in it, as I always had. People called this a charming eccentricity, and when they saw mine, the replacement I built after Mo filched the original, assumed I was copying her. But that's ancient history, priors, you'd say in my trade. Here and now, Moe's striding into the neighborhood policing office, scowling, clutching a shoebox. She's clad in a big belly dress for an expectant mom, lime velvet in color, with boxy collars and cuffs. Panels peel away from its gut, and something shiny and green hangs over her curved stomach. Constable Elizabeth. She snaps her gum. All business. You pregnant, Mo? It's for the fall show. She perches on the chair. Want to try it on? It comes with an inflatable tummy. I'm working. Come on. I'll wear your uniform. March around in front of the door so nobody catches you screwing around. You wish. I cough to hide a smile. What's in the box? Don't know exactly. Games. Stalling. I take a better look at the dress. The plastic molding stretched over her belly are frogs and lizards, big-eyed, cartoonish, and friendly. Someone's gonna buy this? I have pre-orders. What do you mean you don't know what's in the box? Open it. You got it in the mail? It's not a bomb, Liz. I open it. 
Then I shut it again, stuff it in the bottom of the desk drawer, and close the window blinds before spraying everything with disinfectant so strong it makes the eyes water. There's the girl I remember so fondly. Mo's voice is relaxed, but the room is darker with the blinds closed, and I see the red marks on her mouth. She's been biting her lips. You do know what that is. No, I say, but there's no strength in my voice. No, my motto, Liz. Why earn something when you can rip it off? Every puzzle has a solution. My genius is... Yeah, knowing the person with the answer. So? You sleep in a modified gas mask. So do you, Mo. Roommate see, roommate do. I know a survival tactic when I see it. Delusions. Everybody at McMurdy said so. Liz, she kicks the desk hard. You're not crazed. I let out a breath. It's a victory, making her lose her temper. The thing in the box is a fairy. She falls back in her chair, spinning it with one foot. Her hands are trembling, and when she sees me noticing, her lip curls. Is this where I flip out and say, that's impossible? Usually. A fairy. Yes. What does it look like? Like an itty-bitty dead person with bird wings stuck to a slice of Wonder Bread. The dead part is what should worry you. Fairies don't believe in mitigating circumstances. Kind of like you. Shut up, Mo. Ooh, point for me. Opening the drawer, I find the bread has worked its way loose from the box and is crawling up the inside of the desk. I pinch up the slice, avoiding the orange specks in the peanut butter that glues the little corpse there, face up and splayed. Time of deaths around sunrise. How can you tell? The size. It's just a baby. What's this? She points to a green stem in its hand. A dream siphon. Which means? She reaches to poke the body and I slap her hand. Come on, what's a dream siphon? I fiddle with the papers on my desk, trying to hide how I'm pulled between what's right and what I'm going to do. I should tell her this doesn't have anything to do with the police or my commercial drive beat. I should show her the door. But Mo stole my mask all those years ago. She cost me one of my last few dreams. It's hard not to feel owed, like I shouldn't grab this chance to get one of hers in return. Finally, I ask, do you still have those nightmares about weird bugs? Maybe. So? This is the cure. I push the green wand out of the fairy's dead hand with the tip of a pen. When I've got it off the bread, I raise it to Mo's face. Hey! She rears back. You want to know about this stuff or not? Yeah. Then relax. It's okay, I promise. She stops wiggling, and I lay the narrow point of the stem against the corner of her eye. Think of a bug from your nightmares. Mo grips my cheap, taxpayer-bought desk. Seconds later, a tiny moth squeezes out of the wide end of the siphon. Shrunken and wet, it plumps out and starts flapping around on my desk. Drying as it grows to the size of my fist, it never manages to get airborne. This is it? Its wings are covered in pink and yellow neon spots, and it looks like something from a kid's movie. Big, fearless Moe's afraid of this? Not funny, Liz. The thing rattles its wings, and she startles me by leaping to her feet, backing up against the wall. The siphon stem jiggles from its place in the corner of her eye. Relax, I say, grabbing the moth. It unfluffs defensively, shrinking to sleekness becoming about the size of a plum. Is it 
dead. It's too lovable to kill. This has turned out better than I guessed. I was expecting something horrible. I stuff the moth in my mouth, and it dissolves like cotton candy, leaving a hint of dry sand between my teeth. Mo turns away and wretches. I'm surprised she's so affected, and petty enough to be pleased. After a second, I relent, patting her back. The dream I've swallowed starts to seep in. Moth images flitter through my empty attic of a mind. Dusty and hairy, gray and brown and green and orange and cartoon color, too. Powder-scented with soft antenna, they have sharply jointed legs and perfect dots for eyes. You are so gross, Lizbeth. Mo's reproach pulls me back. She's pale and shadows edge beneath her eyes, which were bright and alert minutes earlier. Dream loss can do that. Get over it, Mo, and tell me what the dream moth looks like. Why don't you tell me how it tastes? Refreshing. I tug the siphon off her eye. Humor me. Red with no pink wings and... Her eyes widen. Oh, my God. It's like you dreamed it, but now you can't remember? She nods, eyeing the yellow and pink dust on my palm. That dream is gone for good now. You mean no more moth dreams ever? Not for you. That's what a dream siphon does. Now, if all your questions are answered, how about getting out of my office? Instead, she paces my tiny floor. That's why you built the mask. Fairy siphon off dreams and you were protecting yours. The few I have left, I think. What I say is, where'd you find the body? The bread crawled over my hand this morning. I thought you don't eat wheat. Jesus, Constable, you keep a file on me. Was it your bread? Of course not, and I don't want the lecture about caring for a juvenile. My stomach flops. I get it now. Why Mo's so scared about the fairy instead of curious? Why she came to me? It was Peg's bread, I say. Mo nods. Seven years ago, Peg was just a gaunt six-year-old with the most infectious laugh ever to ring in the drab hallways of McMurdy's. Now, she's 13 and one of Moe's hangers. She's a cute, good-natured kid, the kind who never gives you shit no matter what you catch him doing or who you're hauling them back to. Peg always gives you a smile and a cheerful word, even when her big eyes are speaking volumes. Stop the squad car. Let me disappear. Is Peg hurt? My voice sounds like it's in a tunnel. She took off. She's gone. She's Peg. She could be anywhere. Mo, did you actually see her leave? Drooping, Mo squeezes her goofy lizard-covered gut. No, and she left her things behind. A familiar urge to smack her rises in me and then falls away. If Peg had been anywhere but Mo's, I'd never have known she was gone. Liz? Peg's in trouble. Taken by fairies. I try to calculate how much she'll have aged. Nine minutes is a year when someone dreams in Phaeton. She could be in her thirties. Why, Liz? What do they want? She's killed a fairy. Pulling myself together, I indicate to the corpse in its bready frame. Exhibit A here was siphoning. One of Peg's dreams escaped, probably. It knocked her into the bread. They're allergic to bread, Holmes. No, the siphoner got stuck in the peanut butter, struggled, and released a lot of pix dust. Pix? I point at the orange specks in the peanut butter. This. Pix dust. 
Looks like pollen. It's dander. Fairy dander. Despite what she's already seen, Mo's voice is skeptical. Magic fairy dander. It gave the bread the wiggles and the slice folded over, strangling or squishing our victim. They're pretty delicate. And now, what's happened to Peg? Taken. Where? To fairyland? Basically. Mo rakes a shaking hand through her hair. If she comes back, will she be like you? I pretend I don't know what she means. Great. What do we do? Nothing. I peel the fairy corpse off the bread, and it withers into a husk. The bread I dunk in a cup of coffee, soaking it until it falls into crumbs, and then washing the mess down the sink. Go home, Mo. You're going after her. No. You love that kid. Mo, she's gone. You're going, Liz, and I'm going too, or else. I squash the box and dump it in recycling. Or else. That's a threat. You're supposed to imagine dire consequences. Except you can't imagine, can you? You'll have to spell it out. Come on, I could total your life. I know everything about you. Unstrapping my sidearm, I unload it and open the office safe, trading the weapon for a small pouch of pills and vials. You'll be sorry if you come, Maureen Gonzich. She bares her teeth. First off, you have to do everything I say. And no whining if you aren't up for a life-altering experience. Is that your idea of a briefing, Constable? There's more. Pop out your contact lenses and put on your glasses. And take these. Her eyes glitter as I dig out the pills. What are they? Antihistamines. Totally legal. Sorry to disappoint you. She tosses them back, sullen. It goes both ways. I know her teenage secrets, too. Now what? The first time you go into a fairy city, you have to offer a flesh tribute. We have to pull out one of your toenails. I'm hoping she'll back out, but Mo doesn't even flinch. Got anesthetic, or do I butch it out? We don't talk as I set us up. Do the surgery, wrap her bleeding toe, pulling out a vial of aged pig's dust. I mix it with the saline. This gets trickled, one drop, each side, into our ears. Hold the toenail up on your palm, I say. It's already happening. My ears ring so loud it hurts, and I point Mo toward the window so she'll see things slowing down. People freezing in mid-step. Cars and trucks gliding to a halt. A thick, crumbly slop made of pig's dust. Discarded flower petals and bits of opalescent eggshell come into view, covering everything and everyone. Under its drifts, people turn into anonymous perches and it makes little hills of the cars and park benches. Only the trees are clear of the slur, fizzing air sweetly from their leaves to blow off the fragments and dust. They glow, making the daylight green. Down here at ground level, fairies are few and far between. Only the flower threshers are down in the pit of the city, drawing petals into their baskets with long multi-fingered rakes. Something buzzes past, licking the toenail off Moe's upturned hand, Welcome to Cass Queen, I say. Dusting the slop off her shoulders and hair, Mo bites her lip again. This time, so hard it bleeds. I thought we were going somewhere. I lead her out into the open air of the park. The cities coexist. Fay times just faster. Cass Queen changes too fast for us to see, especially since we don't want to. It's like barnacles. She squints at the slur-covered skyline of downtown. I guess. 
On the roofs, layered bulbs made of orange pixie wax covered the shingles in a crust. Six or seven feet tall, each bulb forms a chamber, and through their translucent walls we can see sleeping fairies in their various possessions. From time to time, they crack open at the top, revealing onion layers of wax as a fairy emerges, buzzing wings adding to the general throb in the air. One of the flyers bears down on us, and I have to grab Mo to keep her from dodging. The fairy swerves, clearing her by inches. No sudden moves, I lecture sternly. They're faster. They'll always go around us if you don't skitter. They're so big, she says, stunned. They're older. Unlike the corpse on the bread, the fairies buzzing past us are teen-sized. Most are red-skinned with shaggy black hair, though a few lean toward Euro, Asian, and African heritage. They have long, angular limbs and wings like hummingbirds. The vibration of their wings makes my skin buzz and itch. Sandy grains of dander are coming off their bodies in wispy orange clouds, smelling of sugar and sweat. The pix dust swirls in a fog along their flight paths. See, I explain. They eat flowers. They exude this. And they live in bulby waxy barnacles. And they play chicken with the tourists. Got it. They do all sorts of things. Harvest flowers and sing songs and have wars with other cities. All the action is up higher. Where the air's clean, she sniffles, despite the allergy pills. Cleaner. And they siphon dreams. I forgot to ask why. It's how they get stuff. I point at a bulb filled with odds and ends, a storeroom. We climb to the building roof and press our noses against the wax. Inside are ornate chairs, a dog sled, cartoonish paintings, a mushroom-shaped lamp, a bicycle, buckets. Animal head plaques. They can't lift much, even when they're full grown. But dreams don't weigh anything. We're just a great big flea market, as far as they're concerned. Fairies. They always seem so benign in the stories. You need to read older stories. I grunt. They got better publicists now. The fear on her face had been fading, changing to curiosity and excitement. So we're here, and Peg's here. Where do we start, Liz? We? I find I'm glad for once to have company in fay time. I wiggle my foot inside my left shoe, imagining I can feel the missing toenails. My entrance tributes to four pix hives. Lundown, Gapery, Tirana, and Casqueen. Think, Liz. Peg. Brought here for killing the siphoner. But stashed where? We need a gossip monger, I say. A what? One of the blurring forms swoops out of the flighted crowds above, wings driving a breeze that lifts our hair. The walls remember everything that ever happened for all generations. Listen. I gesture at a layer of wax lying heavy on the side of a building, and Mo's eyes widen at the low murmur coming from it. A mixture of words that in Casqueam are, I've been told, mostly Salish and Stolo. It's like a database, a history. They know everything that happens here, and the gossip mongers speak the language. You're keeping Dogwood waiting. The swooping fairy had stopped just short of colliding with us. Arms folded over a skinny chest. She's wearing a sarong pieced together from dreamed dish towels and rock t-shirts. We want to find a girl, Peg, a human girl. We know she's here, but not where. Mo says it all in a rush before I can make the request properly. Can you pay? I hold up the dream siphon, but the creature turns up her nose. Newcomers talk as you walk, so say the walls. 
Don't rhyme at us, I say. What do you want? The fairy's eyes flick down to Mo's stomach and the critters on the dress. The name of your unborn. No names, I say. Besides, she's not preg- Dogwood isn't addressing you. I don't know anything worth trading, Mo says. Dogwood points at me. Tell me about her. About no names, I repeat weakly, and the fairy springs to my shoulders, bird-like despite her size. Her hands twist in my hair. Tell me of your vexy friend, she croons. Mo frowns and looks at me. Vexy? I pry my hair free and check the fairy's hand for loose strands, letting go as soon as Dogwood vaults away. She lights on a lamppost, twirling. Vexy means troublesome, Mo. Treble cow. Dogwood trills, ear-splitting laughter. Her wings throb, stirring up the orange slur. You have nothing? She has a phobia, Mo says. Dogwood's eyes widen. Her lips part, revealing small, glittering teeth. Fierce. Excellent coin. There's no help for it now. You'll tell her where Peg is? So pacted. The magic words. Go ahead, damn it, I tell Mo. She's afraid of needles. Mo looks at me sidelong, probably pleased that she's managed to trade, but not knowing to gloat when I clearly want to clock her. Dogwood shrieks again, pleased, and word goes out through the walls. I have enemies here. They may already be combing the dream shops for hypodermics. Where's the kid? Mo demands. Dogwood pirouettes. Fools! She's where you left her. What's that supposed to mean? Liz? I groan. Your place. We walk to Mo's house, Dogwood trailing behind us lazily. Sure enough, we find Peg there, lying on a hanger hammock. Pick's wax has been dripped all over like melted candles, encasing her body, cutting itself into diamonds where it hangs through the hammock mesh. The thin stream of a dream siphon drifts above her face, its open tip divided like a wishbone, its stems bent into the corners of her eyes. The siphon's tip pokes up through a small break in the pick's wax, extruding set pieces from Peg's dreams, couches and books and xylophones. The dreams are brighter than a usual teenager's, as if Peg hasn't been thinned as much as most kids her age. An acid metal night mask, my old one, I realize with shock, is lying on the pillow beside her. That's why the dream that killed the fairy had so much kick, I murmur. You've been masking her. Fairies zoom in and out of the room, stripping any people dreams of their clothing before shredding their bodies to dusty flakes, then picking up the objects and buzzing away. She's asleep. Mo whispers. No, I say, relieved. She's on the verge of waking. Sounds like the same thing to me. It's just different enough. When a human falls asleep in fey time, her body ages at fairy speed. You and I lay down now for a three-hour nap. We'd go home a couple of old ladies. Whatever. We're putting an end to it now, right? Mo's voice is grim as she reaches for one of the passing fairies. I grab her by the shoulders, slam her against the wall. You can't just flatten them. They'd put you down. You talk like we're fucking livestock. Smack one, honey. You'll find out. Pulling free, she collapses onto a couch. And you've known about this for how long? Always. How do you feel? I shake my head, having no good answer. Finally, she sighs. <sighs> what do we do? Find some way to buy them off. With what? I don't know yet. She looks at Dogwood, who is crooning and twisting one of the hammocks. Any suggestions? 
The gossip monger shrugs, making gloat of it. Can you tell me why they grabbed her? Mo asks. Perhaps. How much? Mo, it doesn't matter, I say. But there's a Mountie Stetson lying on the coffee table beside us, and Dogwood eyes it covetously. Dogwood could use one of those, she says. So packed it. Mo hooks the hat off the coffee table, tossing it like a frisbee. It lands right on the fairy's head. Then it bears her, shrieking to the ground. I told you they aren't strong, I say as the fairy flails. The hat falls off before I can rescue her. Dogwood zooms into flight, buzzing Mo once, and then hovering at a wary distance, wings thrumming furiously. Mo, they trade in dreams. Hard goods are useless to them. Okay, fine, I understand. Where's that siphon? I hold out the stem we got off the corpse this morning. Mo wedges it into her eye. Look at the hat, I say, and a clean copy of the Stetson bubbles out of the stem and plumps up to life-size. Dogwood comes out of her snit, snatching it with a pleased screech, and zooming out of the room. Mo wobbles. When I try to steady her, she nearly drags me to the floor. Take a breath. It can be tiring. She's gone. Mo's expression darkens. Little Shrack ripped us off. No, the economy runs on Cascade barters. She'll trade the hat for something, trade that for something else. When she gets something she actually wants, she'll come answer your questions. You're sure? She'll definitely be back. She's not hanging around because we're novelties. Why? What's she want with us? Nothing I'm going to let happen. Fine. She straightens up. I had plans for that hat. Now, I can't quite remember. It's what dreams do, Mo. They melt away. They're taken. Will we get an answer soon? It'll be bad news, I say. And suddenly the gossip monger is back, a satchel in her little hand. She settles atop a bookshelf with a little curtsy. The child is providing goods to the dream mongers as compensation for the death of Sundew and to punish the withholding of dreams. Withholding? My eyes drift to the melted night mask near Peg. It must have been an accident, Mo says, trying to reach past the pitiless black eyes. Don't blame Peg. Dogwood pacted to answer a question, not to argue. How long will they keep her? Until she's out of dreams, woman, just like the trouble cow. With that, Dogwood thrums up to the corner and presses her ear to a waxy bubble hanging from the ceiling. Mo turns to me, desperate. We could talk to someone else. No, she's speaking for all of them. The only way we're getting Peg back is by making it a hassle for them to keep her. She puzzles over that, then yawns. I begged. We're not built for this. I pass her a packet of caffeine pills. How long have we been here? An hour, I think. I'm already tired. Take the pills. I shouldn't. She tosses two tablets back anyway, taking the ever-present gum out of her mouth temporarily as she swallows. Shouldn't. My hand comes up over my mouth. You are knocked up. Her grin flashes. I didn't lie. I just didn't answer when you asked. What's the big hairy problem? You'll be lucky if the kid only has two heads. Stop making shit up. I don't have an imagination. Remember, you have to leave. I'm not going until Peg's loose. It's not safe, Mo. Solve this problem and get us out of here then. Instead, I dart up to her bedroom, looking for a mask. 
I find a box of them. Night masks, their tags read. The newest lopsided creation. Big, bright goggles that seal around the eyes to keep dreams in. The breather is trademark mall, a thing that should be uncomfortable, made perfect and cozy. When I first escaped Tirana, I built my night mask out of combat store scraps. I had escaped to human time with only a few dreams left, and I couldn't bear the idea of losing them to siphoners one by one. And the joke on me, the unforgivable thing, was that when most stole the mask and started using it, she was preventing the normal dream siphoning that happens to all of us over the course of a lifetime. Masking made her a genius of sorts. At least, that's what they call her in the fashion community. If this box full of masks is the real reason Cass Gleam is making an example of Peg, then I'm the one to blame. Mo couldn't have known what would happen, couldn't know the fairies see the mask as a first-stage attack on the foundations of their economy, of their very lives. They'd never understand how few people would actually sleep in these things. Did she speak true? Dogwood's voice is a whisper behind me. I whirl, but she lands on my back, her legs locking around my belly, bare ankles crossing, grip firm, one hand claws at my shoulder. Did your friend speak honestly, trouble cow? I don't know what you mean. Then her hand comes around in front of my face, clasping a rusty, old-fashioned hypodermic. Just seeing it makes me break into a sweat. I go still, because if I don't, I'm going to slam backward into a wall and crush her, and I don't dare. I want to live. Have to live if I'm going to get Peg and Mo out of here. I should close my eyes, but I can't look away from the dream needle. Go now, Dogwood says. Leave them all. The girl, the woman, the babe. Do as I say, and I pack to give them back by nightfall. In what kind of shape? We can negotiate, she says. I can't. Truly? Now her fingers are hooked through the steel loops of the hypo her thumb rubbing its plunger. A drop of steaming brown fluid beads on the wickedly sharp point. Don't run away. Don't scream. My voice, when it comes, sounds like a little girl's. That can't hurt me. She hisses. Take the packed trouble, cow. I'm not leaving them. Moving slowly and gently, I unclench her hand from my shoulder, unlock the grip of her legs around my waist. Dogwood bursts into motion, letting go. Her wings, a loud and violent hum as she whips over my head and drives the needle into my mouth. I try to scream for Mo, but sound doesn't come. The point of the needle spears my tongue, going through painfully, and the dream drug pulls around my teeth. I try to spit it back, but the dream is already dissolving. My mind fills with nightmares. Shots and punctures and stainless steel plates full of needles, dirty, blood-tinged ampules and sterile, pointy shafts, the wide bores of blood donation needles, even the terrible metal slivers wielded by acupuncturists. A fairy wafts backward to land on the box of masks. Withholding dreams is forbidden. If your friend masks anyone else, we'll put her down. I rub at my tongue feeling for the puncture wound, but it is gone. It's just a dream. I'll siphon it out, I say. Just you try, Dogwood crows, offering me a stem. It is long and thin, and I cannot ignore, as I always did before, how its little openings are pointy and hollow. You should have pacted with me. Heart pounding, I pick up a brand new mask, Staggering back down to the hangar, and I pull it over Mo's face. 
It fits a little strangely over her glasses, but she doesn't argue. Dogwood shadows me, grim, but also pleased. How are we supposed to make keep a peg a hassle? Mo's voice is muffled. I fall onto the couch, eyes locked on the wall, and put on my calmest cop voice. It'll be okay. They've got power, yeah, but they're dumb, and they've got short attention spans. We'll think of something. Her hand clasps mine, warm and dry, squeezing. What they're doing to Peg, it's what they did to you, isn't it? More or less. And now they say you're trouble? I've got a vengeful streak, remember? Her fingers trace a long scar running up her ulna. But why not get rid of you, Liz? I open my shirt and show her the three orange circles around my collarbones, the ones that don't show in human time. I helped one of them in Gay Paris. That's their name for Paris. You and Paris? I can't see that. It was the fairy Paris, Maureen. I didn't go to Versailles or anything. The point is, Cowslip put these marks on me, and the others can't kill me. You're her pet? No. She's like an animal rights activist. I'm getting tired of the cow analogy. Hey, it's not my fault the move fits. You're just cranky because I'm in on your great big secret. The funny thing is that I've wanted to tell Mo for years, but I don't say that. My skin prickles, and I try not to think of needles. I'm worried about Peg. Cow, cow, trouble cow, Lizzie is a trouble cow. Cause a row, holy wow, Lizzie is. Would you stop? Cow. It's a shout. Sacred cow. Mo turns to Dogwood, eyes gleaming. The gossip monger makes Mo dream her a hairy blue jacket before admitting there is a way to make a human too holy or something like it. For dream. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Siphoning. She gives up the information without much fuss. There's a catch. We need a salve for peg. An eyewash made from the leaves of something I've never heard of. A jester tree. We troop from one end of Casqueam to the other, trying to find out about the tree. As the hours pass, we get more and more drained. 
But the sun doesn't move in the sky. It beats down, merciless and golden, from the nine o'clock position. Twice, we have to take more caffeine pills. How long is a day to them? Mo asks. Dreaming things, chariots and spinning wheels and winking light bulbs with legs, is making her ever more haggard, and I wish I didn't know about the baby. A lifetime, I say. Spawn at dawn, made at dusk. By twilight, they're thirty feet tall. Thirty? And they can't lift more than a few grams? I've heard up north in the summer they can make it to fifty feet tall. Long days, you know. They mate and their eggs pile up in the streets. Tiny little eggs, billions of them. In a city this big, they stack seven feet deep. And when the sun goes down, the fairies die. Billions of eggs. Her hands drift up to the seven-foot mark as she considers this. Liz, this doesn't look like billions of fairies. Don't all the eggs take? I tap the filter on her mask, trying not to notice how her eyes are hollow and bruised through the green glass of the goggles. That's why the mask doesn't just cover the eyes. The eggs that live are the ones we inhale. They sit in our lungs through the night. Fairies hatch inside us, Mo. Suddenly, she's very busy checking her mask seals. By now, word is in the walls that Dogwood is vending dreams to order, and we get into a complex four-way barter. An ancient fairy has a vial of jester salve, all prepared and ready, but the payment comes dear. Mo has to make a skyscraper-high aquarium full of fish. I hold her steady while she pops her goggles and siphons it out of her mind. It grows to the clouds, an octagonal pillar filled with shellfish and fantastic creatures. She cheats a little, filling it with pink lemonade so she won't lose her water dreams, throwing in more of the insects that have filled her nightmares since we were both girls. Even so, she loses some major dreams, seahorses and clams, sand dollars and smooth black pebbles and long, thin reeds. When she's done, she pitches to her knees, and I think for a second she's passed out. This is what Dogwood is waiting for, why she's stuck close. I always pick up a greedy shadow when I speed into Phaetime. Dogwood wants us asleep, and at her mercy. She'd catch Mo's baby, and the Dream Eaters would have Peg. We'd be mindless old women before they let us wake up. But Mo doesn't fall, just hangs there, head down on her hands and knees, while the pact is declared complete. In exchange for the aquarium, we get the salve. This better work, Mo says, trying to sound threatening. Her lips are bleeding. I have my doubts, but I don't tell her that. It'll be okay, Mo. We stagger back to lopsided fashions and hear a cackling sound that cuts off as we open the door. I light up incense, filling the hangar with smoke until the dream siphoners are driven out. Only Dogwood refuses to go, retreating to the high corner of the room, waving her away, covering her face with one of her shirts. I take up a pair of sewing shears and try to cut off the wax covering Peg's face. They slide over the barrier with a screech. Too hard to cut? Mo asks. Blinking, I look around. There are tiny basting brushes all over the floor, and a drizzle of fluid, some kind of potion, surely, is pooled in the hollow of Peg's elbow. I touch the back of my fingernail to the liquid, which is clear but somehow brighter than the water, almost lit from within. It dries fast, and when I flick at the fingernail seconds later, I find it is diamond hard. My eyes are welling up with tears. We were so close, and now we're out of time. Liz? Dogwood laughs shrilly through her shirt. They hardened her cocoon. I scratch my hardened nail over the wax uselessly. No! Mo slides her hand over Peg, 
pressing, probing for soft spots and finding none. We just have to bust her out. Time's up. I've lost my cop voice. It comes out a giggle. Dogwood'll tell us how to cut through. Don't you see? I lower my voice to a hiss. She's screwing us deliberately. Someone else, then. You're dreamed out for today. I'd still try, Mo whispers. I take a long breath, choking on incense, and make myself look away from Peg's face. I'm sorry, Mo, but if we get caught here, nobody will help her. So we leave? Come back once we've slept it off? Tomorrow, a fairy's lifetime. I nod anyway. The longer she's in there, she won't run out of dreams in a day, I say. Mo wells up, and every urge I have to comfort her blows away as I wonder how she sees me. Harsh words rise from my belly, and I barely hold them in. We aren't giving up, Mo. The thought of leaving the kid here feels like broken glass in my chest, but we're too close to getting lost ourselves. Say goodbye. All right. The goggles have misted over, and she takes the night mask off, leaning over to kiss Peg's forehead. Then, with a glare, she spits her gum into the opening where the dream siphon extends above the wax. Mo! Dogwood howls, furious, shoving me away with her free hand. Mo makes a seal with the gum over the vent before smearing the last drop of hardening potion over it. A single pink strand stretches between the siphon above Peg's face and Mo's thumb thinning and breaking to fall in a sticky line down Peg's wax-case chest. What can it hurt? I don't have an answer to that. I'm frozen, watching as one of Peg's dreams wells up the vent toward her eye, then hits the blockage. It backs up the tube and emerges, somewhat flattened from the other end. As the siphon jitters but fails to dislodge from Peg's eye, the dream unfurls into a frog. Wax puffs around it in a tiny bubble, and I poke the bulge with shears still impervious. Other things are already crawling out after the frog, a long thread of fern, a spray of little daisies. Each dream bounces off the one before, skating to a free space on her skin. They don't seem to have trouble bending the wax from the inside. Soon, Peg's face is covered in dreams, foliage I recognize from Burns Bog, hardware which mostly looks like school furniture. People are coming out, too, a handful of kids who are probably classmates. Under the wax, they are protected from dogwood. Helpless to destroy them, she growls down at us from the ceiling. The people dreams grow to a height of six inches, exploring the plants rooted in the dreamscape forming on Peg's body. Field trip, Mo whispers. Look, there's a little science teacher. And a bus. The group putters over the hem of Peg's nightgown, distending the wax. I test the surface again, fruitlessly. A yawn splits Mo's face and she shakes herself. We have to get out of here. Always a fucking cop. Leave me alone. A trio of tiny funnel clouds blows out of the siphon next, circling the wandering kids. Storm cellar things appear. Jam jars, spider webs, loose two-by-fours, hockey gear. By now, Peg's body is half-hidden by the crowd of dreams caught in the growing Pixwax balloon. Peering in, I have a hazy sense of a story unfolding. The tornadoes drive the kids to the shelter, where they find a tunnel that leads to a helicopter. It seems like it all has something to do with trying to capture the whirlwinds in the mayonnaise jars. Watching it, I all but fall into a standing doze. I snap free and shake Mo. We gotta go. Five more minutes, she pleads. No. I cast one last glance at Peg and see the two of us 
The dream Lizabeth is standing atop a pile of bone-shaped branches, wearing a uniform and explaining something. I can't hear the words, but I'm caught by how old I seem. How bossy. But I'm tall, too. Muscled and strong. Jesus, Mo says. Her peg dream self is a sexy dragon girl, wild-eyed and gorgeous, snapping its jaws at everything. For a second, I think I'd give a lot to be seen that way. But it's clear from Mo's face that this isn't at all the way she'd hoped Peg saw her. She trusts you, she says bitterly, looking at the little me. Then her expression changes, and she's pleading. Liz, do something. I'll try. I pound on the wax membrane. All the dream people pull loose from their scenery and look at me. A giant-sized thing rapping on the sky of their world. Dragonness Mo flies up to me, spraying fire, playful and beautiful. The flame thins the wax, but not enough. And then she's coiling off on another tangent. No help at all. I look past her, to the other me, pointing at the wax, at the weapon on her little hip. A yawn cracks my face, and even though I'm standing, I can feel my eyelids sinking. The dream me is still talking, talking too much. I must yak at Peg all the time. Please shut up. And beside me, Mo is wobbling. Okay. Now we have to get out. That's when the dream version of myself picks up a glass jar full of tornado and hurls it against the orange wax barrier. There's a pop, just a tiny one. Then the whole balloon bursts. Dream things tear around the room and dogwood gives chase, coughing. The whirlwinds set up conflicting currents. Wind sucks at us one minute and blows us against the walls the next. One of the twisters blasts between my teeth, shooting down my throat and then dissipating filling my mind with delicious long-lost shades of stormy weather. Clear pockets of air are appearing in the cloud of incense. Just outside the room, I can hear rising fairy voices. The smoke in the air is still too dense, but they'll rush in as soon as they can. The jester eye drops! Mo shouts. She struggles to the hammock, twists her arm into the mesh so she can't be blown away and pries up Peg's eyelids. Liz, come on! I launch myself off the wall, opening the flask, and washing the holy liquid into Peg's two large eyes. Just like that, the fairies are keening, angry, and cheated. Still hacking, dogwood falls on Peg's dream people in a fury, slicing them to pieces. I just managed to grab the tiny version of myself, shoving it into Peg's mouth. The dragon dream turns instantly to follow, but Mo, catching her around the serpentine waist, looks speculatively at the gossip monger and her shredding claws. Don't, I shout, too strongly, too much like a cop. It's the wrong thing. All our history will drive her to do the opposite of what I say. Mo, she adores you. She gives me a flinty, stubborn look. Can't you see? You have to be there, alive, inside her, if the way Peg sees you is going to change. Dogwood rushes forward, and I think, for an instant, that Mo will let her have the little spitfire. But no. A quick turn, and Dream Mo flicks snakely down Peg's throat. Dogwood's hand stops just short of Peg's teeth. Can we go now? Mo pulls Peg off the bed and staggers all of two steps before sinking to the floor, wax dripping into her velvet dress. She is oblivious to the tiny dreamed lightning bolt caught in her anklet. Storm dreams, I think, savoring them. Can't let her lose those. I snap the bolt free and squeeze its buzzing length between my fingers, press it past Peg's lips. Why isn't she waking up? Mo demands fuzzily. She's falling asleep, I say. I can see the young face aging ever so slightly. 
Mo sees it too, and the reality of this place hits her again. Her eyes widen in fear, even as she struggles to keep them open. It's okay, I tell her. It's over. Then I give them both a good pinch, squeezing the backs of their arms just above the elbow, catching the nerve there hard enough to bruise. Mo cries out, trying to yank free. Then her eyes widen, and she starts to wait, slowly to statue speed. Peg opens her eyes before she goes. Lisbeth, she says, smiling wide. You came for me. The look on her face leaves me breathless. We came, is what I say. I kiss her wax sticky forehead and pinch her again, and she goes still on the floor beside Mo. Safe, both of them. My turn now. I turn to laugh in the face of the gossip monger's fury, ignoring the voice inside that says I've barely come out even. Needle dreams, a fey-touched baby. Mo undoubtedly already thinking of ways to finagle more visits to Casqueam, and who knows what the jester self did to Peg. And me? I'm the responsible one. But Dogwood just sees loss for her side. So I smile as she yells curses at me in a language I don't speak. Imagining moths and thunder, I stick out my tongue at her, blowing a raspberry of triumph before pinching myself back to the slow world where I belong. Ms. Delmonica paints a very different picture of fairies in this tale. These are most definitely not the fairies depicted in modern movies and fairy tales, not the sort of fairies I'd want to stumble upon, more like evil little dream-sucking mayflies. But what a marvelous detailed world she draws us into. From a world of flying fairies to a world where a woman has discovered how to fly. Our next story, The Flying Woman by Megan McCarran, takes us on a wild ride with a woman who discovers that sometimes people really can fly and the troubles that sometimes come with being special. Ms. McCarran's writing has recently appeared in The Collagist, The Toast, Gigantic Words, and her short fiction has been a finalist for the Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. A food and restaurant obsessive, she is the editor of Eater Austin. You can find her online at meganmccarran.com and also on Twitter. Sarah Fredrickson is becoming a regular among the narrators here at the Triple F, and rather than read you her entire bio again, let me summarize. She was born in Oregon, raised in Minnesota, has a passion for musical performances and the creative arts. She's performed both on and off stage singing and acting and affects various accents for fun. She's a graduate with degrees in music business and audio production and now lives and works in Australia where she married a local. She enjoys going on adventures, writing music, and reading stories to their cats. We are thrilled to have her contribute her excellent voice to so many wonderful stories. So let me present to you The Flying Woman by Megan McCarran, read for us by Sarah Fredrickson. Part 1 The Flying Woman in Profile the flying woman is just a little bit glamorous. I don't know if the flying came before the glamour or vice versa, but her beauty is airy, and her flying has style. In this picture, she wears her hair long and wavy. Her nose flips up at the end, like a ski jump, and her skin is ruddy from the wind. She's more beautiful than I am. I don't mind. If the image were a daguerreotype, she would seem mysterious. If it were a bust, she would seem noble. 
If it were a holy card, she would be a saint. But the image is a photograph on my wall. And when people see it, they all say, Who is that? She looks so far away. Part two, the flying woman in flight. The flying woman didn't fly above clouds. It's cold up there, she'd say, and there's not enough air. She skimmed the roofs and treetops. Her legs dangled behind her, and she wore her wheelchair strapped to her back. It's hard work, she'd say. It takes focus. But she needed to fly every day. Otherwise, she had trouble falling asleep. She used to solve this problem by taking trips. She strapped on her wheelchair and a backpack and flew to a new town every day, then camped there for the night. She covered a lot of ground. She made it to Ohio and back, but she got lonely. To combat this, she decided to start from the same place every day and gave herself projects. She sat on top of every water tower in the Tri-County area. She saw the top of every courthouse. She had been very close to balancing on top of every car dealership flagpole, wrapping herself in the massive American flags and sinking slowly to the ground. Sometimes the flying woman invited me over to get drunk. We sipped beer and sparkling wine and talked about our jobs. The flying woman was a supermarket checkout girl. I worked at a beauty salon. Then the flying woman would announce she felt airy. She'd burp, and suddenly she'd rise an inch off the couch. She'd burp again, and she'd rise a foot. We'd put music on, and soon she'd be burping, spinning, floating in the air as I danced on the ground. I got rug burns on my feet. She got a headache from bumping her head on the ceiling. At that point, we'd decide to go to bed, and she'd ask me to sleep over, to hold her down for the night. I slept with her coiled in my arms, this close to happy. When her body floated up, I held her closer and dreamt of the moment when I would sit up and cover her lips with my own. Part 3. The Flying Woman in High School When the flying woman went to high school, she did not know she could fly. She did not know many things about herself. But she did have desires nagging fantasies that seemed as impossible as marrying a European prince or traveling back in time. Especially during liturgy, she used to look up at the ceiling and wish to float up there, right in front of everyone, like the host the priest held above his head. And then, one day, she did. The entire auditorium gasped as the flying woman, then more a flying girl, rose towards the ceiling. When she reached the top, she panicked. She wanted to fall like things were supposed to. With that simple shift, 
the moment broke. She plummeted and crashed on the seats below. Something in her body broke, and she passed out from the pain. When she returned to school in a wheelchair, no one could decide. Had it been a miracle or a sin? The priests, sent from around the world to examine her, treated her with wonder and condescension. For a short time, letters poured in, asking, would she pray for peace, speak to angels, send a scrap of her clothes? Her classmates shunned her. Eventually, the priests determined that her flight had been a miracle of faith, but, like Peter, who first walked on water, only to sink into the sea, she had failed to believe. Privately, they warned her never to try that sort of thing again, at least not within the house of God. Part 4 The Flying Woman in Love One day, I went to the house of the flying woman for dinner and found her talking to a man. He wore bicycling gear. He left as soon as I arrived. The flying woman told me nothing about him, and we ate our spaghetti in peace. Then the next day, after work, she told me she was in love. She had met the bicyclist as he was cresting on a hill on his bike, right as she was flying over it. She had surprised him so badly he fell over. They laughed about it for a long time, and the bicyclist invited her out for a drink. They discovered that they shared a love of gin and tonics, shark movies, and historical fiction set in the Renaissance. They both hated Catholicism and cars. I said the bicyclist sounded pretty nice, for a stranger. I saw less of the flying woman after that. The bicyclist could do many flying-friendly activities, it turned out. He could hang glide with her, mountain climb, skydive. She could follow him for hours on his bike rides, like some sort of private superhero, warning him when hills, children, or cars approached. After a day of perfect compatibility, they would go back and drink gin and tonics, watch shark movies, or read historical fiction set in the Renaissance. At night, they'd have sweaty, passionate sex. I knew that last part was true anyway, because I went by her apartment one night, as a surprise, and heard moans through the door. My face flushed with shame, and I left without knocking. I'm sure afterwards they fell asleep in each other's arms. No longings unfulfilled. No one floating away or left behind. One day, the flying woman called me, sobbing. He had gone, just up and left a note saying he had decided to bike across the country. He'd promised to return, but he didn't say when, if ever. I held her, let her wipe her nose on my shirt, and hope he'd find another flying woman, or get hit by a truck. Part 5 The Flying Girl in Peril after the accident at school, the flying girl kept flying, despite the priest's warnings. More than once, her mother found her sprawled on the floor, a bump on her head from having shot up to the ceiling too fast. She would punish the flying girl, call her prideful, 
but the flying girl never gave up. Soon she could do a lap around the top of her room, then two, then ten, then a hundred, and then she went outside. In those days, she didn't have her compact chair, just a standard folding one that was too big to carry on her back, so she never went far. But she maintained a small patrol route around our town. She even gave herself a superhero name. She refused to tell me what it was, but I saw the shirt she wore. She had written a huge A on it with permanent marker. I asked her if it was for Angel, and she laughed. Hard. I was the first and last person the flying girl ever saved. For me, it started in church. The saints in stained glass windows talked to me. Not about God. They wanted candy. Something sweet, they'd say. Something small. Every week they kept it up, begging me for Hershey's, Reese's, M&M's. They told me about the other girls who had brought them cakes, chickens, paintings, even armies. They never called me the right name. Just kept saying, please, Regina, Joni, Catherine, Anne. A Kit Kat, Milky Way, Mars. Something blessed, some king-size bag of something good. Finally, on All Saints Day, I gave in. Before the first mass, I placed my pillowcase full of Halloween candy on the feet of a small, unpainted statue of Mary that stood beneath the stained glass windows. I think the saints had been expecting this. They kept reminding me about Halloween, but they acted completely surprised, like a small child's parents opening a gift they had helped pick out. They sang my praises during the entire service, blasting sunlight even as, outside, it rained. I thought I was free. Then came the reward. They wanted to teach me to fly. But nothing they taught me made any sense. They whispered about teenagers and jumping fish and a girl who couldn't walk. I tried to fight it, but the whispers won. One night they got me to climb to the top of our town's parking garage. It was winter. I had to clamber up drifts of snow to get to the edge. Now, they said. I jumped. For a minute, I swear I hovered. That's why she saw me. Why she had time. The flying girl rocketed towards me, screaming, and caught me just before I hit the ground. The impact shattered her wrist, and she dropped me. I fell with a thud, and she crumpled into a ball beside me, crying. When my heart stopped pounding, I looked over and saw her, the shirt with the A, her cape. I picked her up and carried her to the hospital. We trudged through the empty streets in the wee hours. The wind so cold, our tears burned our faces. And in that silence, we became lifelong friends. I never heard the saints again. But sometimes, 
the flying woman told me she heard whispers urging her. Higher. Higher. I like to think I was the voice that whispered, Come back. Part 6 The Flying Woman in Transit Last fall, the flying woman decided to migrate. I offered to come with her. I had taken up cycling during the bicyclist incident and had gotten pretty good. We bought matching bicycle clothes. She had discovered they were very aerodynamic and set off for Miami or some equally warm place with a preponderance of grocery stores and hair salons. We figured it was three weeks down to Florida, maybe longer if we decided to take breaks from traveling. We took back roads, and the flying woman flew high enough overhead to see around the next bend, but low enough to shout down to me, Look at those cows! Or, What a pretty house! Most of the stuff was too far away for me to see. Two minutes later, I'd spot a cluster of cows or a white and yellow farmhouse and yell back, Oh, yeah. We took turns carrying the wheelchair, which was a little heavier than usual, because we had fitted it with off-road tires for camping. At night, we roasted cheap hot dogs and talked about old memories, small things we had left behind. Now that we were on the road... We felt like we had stepped out of our lives, finally become important. We made it all the way down to Savannah this way. We thought about staying there until one of the locals told us sometimes they got snow. We were disappointed, but we decided to celebrate getting so far south. We got a motel on the edge of town and bought two bottles of cheap champagne we had no music, so we sang, and the flying woman bounced against the ceiling. I held her hands and pulled her around the room, smiling up at her in drunken bliss. Eventually she asked me to pull her down, and after some jumping I grabbed her leg and got her into the bed. My nose brushed her cheek. She turned to look at me, and before I could think, I kissed her. Her mouth was warm and wet. It tasted like bubbles. She pulled me on top of herself to keep from drifting. We kissed again. I felt her body rising beneath mine, in danger any moment of floating away. We got our shirts off without incident, and with practice hands unhooked each other's bras. I took her nipple in my mouth and felt her rise slightly, press her skin to mine. I grinned at her with unabashed happiness, and she pulled my mouth back to hers. Even with her hands hooked behind the headboard, getting our pants off was a bit more of a challenge. We giggled raucously as I pulled jeans and panties off of her thin, tiny legs, which were already floating towards the stucco ceiling. I pressed my palm against her hip and kept her centered. I worked my way slowly, 
made her sigh in the ways I'd always imagined while tracing the contours of my own body. I traced the soft crevices of her lips, pressed my tongue into the deep, wet center. I heard her moan, and her whole body pushed against my grip. I kept my hand steady, held her back, and then she cried out, deep and unrestrained, and I felt her sink. I lifted my head and kissed her. She held me and whispered over and over, Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, you saved me. Part 7 The Flying Woman In Memory I made a lot of plans that night. Or at least I started to before it passed out. But when I woke in the morning, she was gone. I didn't believe it at first. I lay in bed, smiling, waiting for her to come back with breakfast, a map, a car, a home, anything as the hours wore on. Finally, I went to the front desk, and they told me she had checked out hours ago, paid our bill. I must have looked the way I felt, because the clerk touched my hand and asked if I was okay. I rode my bike in circles all day, asking about a woman who could fly, or perhaps one in a wheelchair. No one had seen her. I stayed in the motel until my money ran out. But she never came back. I don't know what happened. Maybe she was ashamed. Maybe she met the bicyclist at the Waffle House next door, on his way back to find her. Maybe migration... It's a solitary thing. I still live in Savannah. I still cut hair. Now I watch the sky. Sometimes I even go to church and pray for that elusive miracle. Not just the touch of lovers, but love. We've all played that game. You know the one, where you're asked if you could have any superpower, what would it be? How many people say they want to fly? But when you think about it, really think about it, would flying truly be a blessing or a curse? I suppose for the flying woman it was a little bit of both. And with that, we wrap up our show for this week. Please remember that Farfetch Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. 
all of the copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetch Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. You know where the button is. It's right there on the website. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website as well. So until next week, watch out for fairies in the peanut butter, and be wary of whispering saints. Take care. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.